Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. We're back this week with another solo interview, though my guest, Ian Rowe, has such a diverse set of experiences and is involved in so many things, you'll be forgiven if you think I'm talking to multiple people. Ian Rowe is a true Renaissance man uh, with past experience at the White House and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and MTV. He started a charter school network in the South Bronx, Public Prep, and is now starting a new charter school there, Vertex Academy. He's a fellow at AEI and at the Woodson Center. He's a key leader in a recent gathering of the top black conservatives, which we'll get into a bit. Uh, He ran for and won a school board seat. He's an Emmy winner, a public intellectual, an entrepreneur, and above all, a true gentleman who is probably embarrassed by all of these accolades I'm giving to him. Uh, I have had the privilege of interviewing Ian twice now at at recent events that Donors Trust co-hosted with the Policy Circle, one in Naples, one in Dallas. And in those, we talked about what it takes to be a social entrepreneur, how to change the narrative of dependency and victimhood that is so prevalent today, and what we as philanthropists can do to rebuild our civic institutions. As we talk today, we'll talk about all of that and more. And during it all, you as a giver will hear about a variety of different efforts and issues where you can grow your giving. So let's jump in. Ian, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for that introduction. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tingly. I'm tingly with all those accolades. <laughs> I hope to live up to all the words you just said. Well, you've lived it. You've, you're, a, you're an embodiment of it. So there's so many places that we could start, um, but maybe we start with your new book and use that as a springboard for all of these other issues. The new book is Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. So what is agency? And why do you think so much of what divides us right now kind of goes back to that concept? Mm. Well, thank you, Peter, for having me on, and, and thank you for, for asking me that question to start, because as you alluded to, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate in my career to work in and around uh, institutions that uh, serve young people, from the Gates Foundation, White House, MTV. I've run networks of public charter schools. You mentioned I'm launching a new international baccalaureate high school this summer, and the thing that I've really started to understand or what are the factors that really drive whether or not young people believe they have the capacity to lead a self-determined life. And I feel, especially in the last few years, there's been this accelerated set of narratives that are really driving a can't-do attitude amongst young people. Um, and I want to break through that. And I, and I, I define these sort of two meta-narratives as blame the system and blame the victim. In the blame the system narrative, if you're a young person and you don't see them on track to achieve the American dream, it's because America itself is this systemically oppressive nation. Based on your race, your class, your gender, you're either automatically an oppressor or you're automatically oppressed. The 
There's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism is evil. And these systems are so rigged against you, literally there's nothing that you can do. You have to wait for some governmental transformation or some other external force to solve your problem. But on the other side, I call blame the victim, where there, if you're not successful, it's not America that's the problem. America is great. You're the problem, right? It's, you haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. You are the architect of your own failure. Like somehow it's your pathology. And of course, that ideology completely ignores the fact that if you're a young person born into potentially an unstable family without a personal, you know, without a strong faith commitment, without access to great schools, it's really hard to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so I felt that there is a yearning for a positive force, a positive and empowering alternative to this blame the victim and blame the system narrative that I think adds up to a singular lie that hurts young people and impedes their sense of agency. So I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And so the question is, where does the ability for a young person to become morally discerning come from? And that's where my framework of family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship, what I call free, is what I put in as the pillars around which I want young people to embrace. And the book is great, and I recommend everyone listening read it. You really spell a lot of this out. But for me, one of the images in the book that, that really paints this idea of agency is when you talk about the who's your daddy truck. Mm. Will, you, will you tell us about that? Yeah, well, you know, I think all of us have these kind of epiphany moments in our life where when something occurs, you just see the world differently. And it just so happened on July 11th, 2016, at about 4 p.m., <laughs> that's when I had my epiphany moment. Because I had been running this network of public charter schools for about six years. Um, we were doing great things. We had 2,000 kids in our schools in you know, low-income communities doing great you know, outcomes for kids. We had nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list. And, and I just thought, um, and we were really, we wanted to grow. We wanted to open new schools. We decided to open new schools in the South Bronx. We moved our headquarters from Manhattan to the South Bronx. And we, the team decided to do a walking tour to get to know the neighborhood. And as we were on our walking tour, uh, in, in front of us, we saw this 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck. And there were all these adults around it, pretty excited that it was there. It was almost like the, uh, the ice cream truck when you see little kids you know, gather around. And, you know, it's, it's a sort of kind of a joyful thing. There was just the missing music, you know, that you're <laughs> that you're <laughs> used to hearing. But as we got closer, I noticed on the on the side of the truck it had graffiti lettering, and it said, "Who's your daddy?" And just what is that? And as we um, went around, saw the crowd, and actually ultimately um, discovered that this entrepreneur had created the "Who's Your Daddy" truck as a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks were spending somewhere between $350 to $500 to answer questions like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? You know, answering really, really deep questions about identity and family. And, you know, I soon discovered that the non-marital birth rate in this, this part of the Bronx was about 
Uh, and that was at the core of a lot of other issues that many of us are trying to tackle around poverty, poor educational outcomes, you know, engagement in the criminal justice system, but not a lot of attention on family structure. And I really started to look at this data that I discovered in Chicago, Appalachia, parts of Alabama, parts of, you know, parts of California, parts of Texas, you know, literally these numbers were not that um, off, especially for women 24 and under. And it became clear to me that just running schools was necessary, but not sufficient. If we really want to create transformational opportunity for young people across race, then we also not only have to talk about math and reading and science, but we also have to educate them about the big decisions that they're going to make in their own lives, starting with their own family formation. Now, you say in the book that agency is, quote, individually practiced yet socially empowered. So I'm wondering how charitable giving relates to this idea of agency. I mean, does the act of charitable giving, in fact, undermine that goal? Are there things that that can be done charitably that do empower agency? How does it fit in? Yeah, well, when I say individually practiced, and socially empowered, that's, that's a parallel to the definition of agency. It's the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So at the end of the day, you are a human being. You're an individual that makes decisions. The question is, where does that social empowerment come from? So from a charitable giving perspective, it doesn't have to undermine, um, it doesn't have to undermine at all the sense of agency. It's just, where are those charitable dollars going? Is it going to strengthen the key institutions which we know are the ones that really propel most young people to be successful? So if, if charitable giving is designed to strengthen families, particularly strengthen the formation of married two-parent households, is, is the charitable giving to strengthen the engagement of faith-based organizations to have greater relevance in the community, is the charitable giving going to strengthen uh, opportunities for school choice, to give more educational freedom um, uh, to kids? Uh, those are the kinds of things where charitable giving not only does not undermine agency, it can actually make more uh, young people have, uh, have the access to institutions that can help them develop agency. So then maybe a better question, actually, is to flip it around. Are there places where charitable giving is undermining this ability for people to take agency? Well, uh, yeah. You know, when, when, when charitable giving uh, or, or public dollars, I mean, because sometimes they can have the ill effect where you can have money that actually is given with positive intent, but actually can deter motivation. So on the public funding front, you see that where... The government will just start sending checks or like ideas like reparations, which is often bandied about as a solution for some members of the black community. Well, if you just start writing government checks, you actually almost create a disincentive for people to go to work, this whole idea of earned success. And then in the philanthropic area, you're seeing a lot of investments. And like even the Gates Foundation, you know, a year ago invested in, in, a, in a math curriculum, which basically said that somehow teaching math can um, reinforce ideas around white supremacy. Uh, so you're seeing a number of philanthropic ideas and monies that are going to organizations that are pushing for this idea of not agency, but equity, and oftentimes racial equity, where they're looking to 
eliminate racial disparities, not by strengthening the core foundations upon which kids need better support, but literally just flattening the disparity. So in, in, in education, for example, there's a lot of interest in closing the racial achievement gap in reading. Well, it turns out if you look at the last 30, 40 years, there truly is a racial achievement gap between black and white students. But because in the entire history of the nation's report card since 1992, you've never had a situation in which even a majority of white students are reading at grade level, closing the racial achievement gap would simply mean that we've achieved universal mediocrity where everyone is below, you know? And so, and, and so the reason I raise that example, it's very prevalent. And when you have this kind of thinking where there's only one piece of causality, you ignore the impact of kids not having access to strong families, not having access to strong faith communities, and not having access to strong school choice. I think that example is really interesting and, and kind of goes to the broader fact that we skip a lot of nuance these days, right? I mean, we're not looking at the, the full picture. We're looking at the picture that reinforces our own norms, our own ideas from the front end. Well, and I think this is, this is what the philanthropic community and givers really have to be careful not to do, not reinforce your predisposed um, analysis or, or, what, or, or what conventional wisdom is telling you must be the answer. We've now been doing a lot of work as a society over the last 50, 60 years to help wide ranges of disadvantaged communities. We've tried massive government transfer programs. We've tried um, you know, uh, essentially closing off opportunity to kids, you know, not having access to school choice in, in, the, in the communities in which I lead schools. There are only 2% of kids graduate from high school ready for college, right? And yet there's a cap on charter schools. Well, we know that only giving parents access to schools where only 2% are graduating from high school ready for college, that's probably a not, not a good intervention. So we have to have the courage and confidence as givers, as philanthropists, to really look at the data, not fall into conventional wisdom, and really identify those factors that are most important. And oftentimes, you come back to family structure, faith commitment, education than ultimately this access to become an entrepreneur. And also giving at different rungs of the ladder, right? If you want to support school choice, you may support the schools themselves, but you may also need to support the think tanks that are helping to drive the policy that's turning the tables, maybe need to do the activist groups yes. that are getting boots on the ground. It, it's a multi-tiered process to, to change the time. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, just wherever your intervention point is, find it, but base it on true analysis of what the problems are. I think a, a lot of times we're kind of stuck in these narratives where it's like, oh, well, I guess that's just the way it is. And again, if you think about race, um, oftentimes if you think, well, if there's a racial disparity, that must mean racial discrimination. And so therefore the solution must also be race-based. That's where you get tens of millions of dollars being invested in things like anti-racist training, which is often proven to, to create even more divisive environments, and yet don't attack any of the underlying issues that create those disparities in the first place. So let's stick with charitable giving. You mentioned the Gates Foundation, and you were there for a year, two a years? A year, a year. Okay. And in one year, we gave away $470 million. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, okay. 
So short tenure, big, big dollars. What lessons did you draw from that experience about the power and the limitations uh, of philanthropy, of big philanthropy, really, to uh, move the needle in education and civic engagement, et cetera? Well, you know, sitting at the Gates Foundation, that's obviously a, a pretty um, pretty lofty position. You know, I, I remember everyone used to laugh at my jokes. Isn't that the truth? When you work at a foundation, you become the, taller, yeah. better looking. <laughs> And uh, and so particularly at Gates, there was something that we often call the Gates effect because we were so large, because there was such a reputation of us being so data heavy, like anything that the Gates Foundation ultimately invested in, a lot of other smaller foundations would follow. And the flip side of that is true, which is that if there was something that the Gates Foundation chose not to invest in, then they were also equally ignored by other factors. And, and in education, I think this is a real problem for all the great work that the Gates Foundation has done, you know, giving away $17 billion in education. Even Bill Gates wrote a 3000 word essay lamenting why they why he and his wife at the time had not seen as much progress as they would have liked in education. You I mean, in global health, they had been helped to develop vaccines, you know, so they saw a lot more work, a lot more progress. And in this 3,000-word essay lamenting why there were still racial achievement gaps and lots of underperformance of kids of all races, the words family structure and parenting weren't in there at all. You know, and, and it, was, it was stunning to me, and I write about this in Agency, that something that is so obvious, even at one of the most data-heavy uh, organizations in the country, uh, it's almost a willful ignorance. Um, uh, and so again, when philanthropists aren't courageous enough to identify obvious things, it, it may feel good because you're being politically correct, but it actually damages the very populations you're seeking to serve. Yeah, you talk in the book about family formation, family structure, how important that is on education, on really all aspects of life. Yes. I mean, the, the entrepreneurship, you know, all of the, the free model there. You know, in the very first episode of this podcast, we had Randy Hicks, who mm. leads the Georgia Center for Opportunity, and he talked about the success sequence, which I know you are very high on as well. Yes. If you're not familiar with this, essentially the idea is, you know, you go get an education, you get a stable job, you get married, do all of that before you have kids, and you have a 97 percent chance of staying out of poverty. Yep. And you highlight this in the book. It this is one of those obvious things it would seem with a 97 percent success be. rate. What stands in the way of getting that message out there more broadly? Ideological gatekeepers who claim to represent the interest of the disadvantaged, but somehow think that, oh, no, 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 we can't share that. We, we, that would be imposing middle-class values. We, we can't share that with young people in communities who are suffering from, um, you know, family dysfunction and other kind of, you know, challenges. Um, you know, we might be insulting to them. So I actually tried this. I actually tried in our schools at eighth grade to start um, teaching this concept of here's this thing called the success sequence and got a lot of pushback from teachers and and others. And I remember we went to visit a high school in New Orleans in ninth graders in a very low income community in um, in New Orleans and a very racially diverse class 
and I had the opportunity to speak to the kids. I said, hey, hey, guys, you know, I, I there's this concept I'd really like to to teach and I'm getting a lot of pushback. So I said to these group of ninth graders, if you knew that there were a series of decisions in your control that 97% of the people who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty and the vast majority enter the middle class or above, would you be interested in learning more about that series of decisions? <laughs> and they looked at me and the I said, of course we'd want to know. Why wouldn't we want to know? And I said, well, you know, there are a bunch of grown-ups who think you might get offended or that somehow if I tell you, you might be insulted in some way. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, why would you not tell us? Why would you deprive me of that information? And it was one of the first instances where you really see the big difference between the gatekeepers, which, by the way, sometimes are philanthropists, right, who, who are the ones who seem to know best what's right for this community. And then you speak to the people in the community themselves about the information they want to be able to have more control over their lives. And so we then, and so we then proceeded to have this conversation where I shared that same data that you just said about 97%. And I also said this is no guarantee. It's not 100%. And it, it was just instilling this idea that there are likely rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. And that as you now make your passageway into young adulthood, you should know this path of decisions has this probability of success, this pathway has this probability of success, higher or lower. And at the end of it, what was so powerful was that these students, these ninth graders, in my view, felt that for the first time, someone had treated them as a respected decision maker in their own life. And that to me is what is in many ways the essence of agency, that we are trying to give you the information about the key information, particularly around family, again, faith, education, and ultimately if you have that foundation, a pathway to entrepreneurship and earn success, that's what we wanna do. So the success sequence is just one example of the kind of information that I think more young people need to have access to to have a life of agency. And sometimes we have to push some people out of the way, including philanthropists who, who, who continue to ignore some of these fundamental elements of what it means to lead a life of flourishing. Yeah, part of agency is acknowledging that other people have agency and are gonna make different decisions, right? Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and the one thing we don't wanna do though is become so paternalistic or so, well, you know, these people can't make the right decisions for themselves. You know, that's often an argument against school choice. There are literally people who argue, no, 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 it's too confusing. You don't want to give too many choices. It is, it is infuriating. I have never met a parent who is, who is not willing to do the work to really dig into those options, regardless of their circumstance. They want better outcomes for their kids. And so it's infuriating when you see people who, no, 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 we shouldn't have school choice because somehow that'll wreck the entire system. You know, we can't, you know, we can't wreck, sacrifice the entire system for your kid and your choice. Meanwhile, every middle and upper class, you know, uh, community has embedded choice within their own options, right? Right. And buying a dishwasher is confusing. <laughs> you know, buying a car is confusing. <laughs> Getting an educational outcome that's going to help your child for, for a long time, there's some incentives aligned to get that right. Correct. Correct. All right, let's jump to another important and related project you're involved in. 
you are a part of a group that met not too long ago in Dallas that brought together a real broad group of black conservative intellectual leaders and convened them to try to to look towards a brighter future for black America, indeed for all Americans. Uh, talk to us about that effort, how your free model plays into the that pathway and, and kind of what are the next steps on that? Yeah, thank you for asking. It's actually inspired by Thomas Sowell, who's an incredible economist who I think is just having his 92nd birthday. He's one of the leading uh, researchers and economists on a, on a wide range of, of um topics most notably what typically contributes to economic flourishing in communities and individuals. He's done studies all around the world. And in 1980, he was doing a lot of research on the progress of the black community in the United States. And he had seen tremendous upward progress within a certain segment, which had been following some of the patterns around strong families, faith commitment, strong access to education. But there was also a segment of the black community that was not succeeding and it was almost entrenched and some of the positive indicators were actually going in the wrong direction economically and yet the dominant narrative was much more of a progressive top-down more government intervention more welfare um, even reparations was on the table more programs that in his view actually contributed to some of the poor outcomes that he was seeing within that segment of the black community so back in 1980 he held a conference where he invited some of the luminaries of the time, which a young Clarence Thomas, a young uh, Bob Woodson, Milton Friedman, where it was all about empowering alternatives, uh, different ideas for how to create more flourishing with more flourishing within the black and other communities. Well, fast forward 40 years, myself, Jason uh, Riley, Glenn Lowry, and Shelby Steele came together to have a similar kind of conference because in some ways even though there has again been continued uh, progress and prosperity for a segment of the black community there's another segment that remains entrenched and we have we and we did we came and had invited some incredible luminaries for three days to share different ideas of how to create flourishing and not surprisingly a lot of them are anchored around strong family formation greater commitment to faith communities, greater access to school choice, more opportunities for access to capital and entrepreneurship. And we are going to take those, uh, the content of what occurred in those panels, and there are going to be several papers and even a manifesto that is produced. Uh, and we may be even doing similar events across the country to say that there is a different uh, alternative to what you might hear from Ibram Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones, again, some of these ideological gatekeepers, the ones who claim that America is so racist, so oppressive, that there's no other solution but reparations for the black community. Well, not everyone agrees with that. And we want to be able to argue with evidence and disagree respectfully and say that we have what we think is a much more compelling argument for how to achieve a true sense of agency amongst all black people and yet these ideas are actually universal, so hopefully would be transformative for people of all races. It's a great effort. Is there a name for this effort? Does it have a, a branded uh, Well, the, 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 the original conference uh, held, was held at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, and so it was known as the Fairmont Conference. The one that we just did uh, a few months ago in, in Texas was at the Old Parkland Hotel. So that was uh, framed as the Old Parkland Conference. 
We'll see what the name is uh, going forward. But whatever the name is, the whole idea is to put forth an empowering alternative. In many ways, against the same framing of blame the system and blame the victim, where it's not affording the respect and dignity that individual agency can be a powerful, powerful force in our society, in our community, with a recognition that agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. And if we can re revitalize the institutions of family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship free, then more of us Americans can lead lives of freedom. So on the show, we like to highlight groups. We've been highlighting a lot of ideas here. Let's let's focus in on some groups. Let's give folks listening something that they could take action on around those four areas. Are there some particular groups out there that you think are really moving the ball forward in in the family area, in the religion area, the education. Oh yeah, yeah. Areas. I mean, you know, I, I would, I would use. Um, you, you mentioned the Woodson Center. I think the Woodson Center for forty years, you know, founded by what Bob Woodson, has been all about cultivating uh, people in communities who every day are living out these principles and values, helping local neighbors become agents of their own uplift. So I'd say the Woodson Center is a powerful organization. Um, you mentioned Randy Hicks um, um, from the Georgia Center. They've been doing great work around family formation and communicating the success sequence. I think under the rubric of religion, institutions like Seton, partners that actually run schools, runs charter schools. It, it, they strengthen Catholic school networks while also running charter schools um, in public settings, but bringing core values. I think that's very powerful. There's an organization called Communio, which uh, leverages um, uh, big data and churches, again, in local communities to strengthen um, parishioners, you know, improving marriage rates, decreasing divorce rates, reducing non-marital birth rates. Uh, you know, so certainly in, in religion and in education, I certainly have to give a plug for my own organization, uh, Vertex Partnership Academies. You know, we're launching an international baccalaureate high school in the heart of the Bronx. Uh, that'll have pathways both to college as well as to careers in high school. So coming out of four years of high school, someone could already have a credential in computer science or construction slash architecture, media or healthcare. And so I think it's an idea that you're gonna see, start seeing more of, that college is not necessarily the destination for everyone. And high school needs to become more of a place where you can have options uh, embedded within and then, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, there's a National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship, uh, NIFTY, uh, you know, even we, um, through a partnership with Charles Schwab, we're going to have all of our uh, ninth graders have a stock portfolio of 10 S&P 500 stocks where they can um, be owners and, and just get a sense of what that means. So that's a sample of, of a few organizations that I think are doing uh, great work and, and certainly worthy of investment. Great. Those are all great groups. Um, so at the very end of the book, you quote Aristotle and about the real problem not being that we aim too high and miss, but that we are aiming too low and hitting. Do you think philanthropy has this problem when it comes to addressing major problems that you highlight? I mean, do we as givers, as community leaders and messengers for our belief need to aim higher? Well, that's such a great question. And, and maybe I'll go back to the racial achievement gap where, you know, for example, in education, the goal often seems to be, well, let's close the racial achievement gap, right? 
And, and that, I think, is a perfect example of aiming too low. And because if you, if you achieve that gap, as I said before, you're just going from, you know, uh, mediocrity to slightly better mediocrity. <laughs> you know, you're, it's not a goal that's inspiring because still at the end of it, more than 50% of all kids will not be reading at grade level. So how about distance to 100? So as opposed to closing to the, the, uh, the gap between these artificial groupings, how about distance to 100 for everyone, right? Because the distance from where we are today as a country in terms of reading levels, 37% of all kids are reading at grade level, to 100 is far bigger than the gap between, uh, you know, uh, potential um, between, um, you know, groups by race. And so that's an example of we need to aim higher and we need to recognize that there have to be different strategies that we're putting forth based on real evidence if we're honest, if we're honest. And if we're honest, we will see that the things that we have traditionally said around race or class or gender, it's not that they don't matter, but factors around family, faith, and access to high quality education far greater factors that will allow us to both aim high and to hit there's such a variety of giver out there and so many different facets that you've highlighted here today where they can give where they can get involved where they can engage and try to lift all boats and they're not no one giver is going to fix it all yep. but working together with an eye towards these problems where a lot of givers can can really make make a move Yes. Preach what you practice in your own life. I mean, I did share a story about in the in the book about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as much as they never really identified family structure as being an important part of their giving. You know, unfortunately, during the course of the book, Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, got divorced. And but in a lot of the reporting, it became clear the reason that they waited till the moment that they did was that they wanted to ensure that their last child graduated from high school. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. They, they knew that just having that stability, whatever, however frayed their relationship, that was an important element. And I just, I, just, I just thought it was important to note that, that they were probably right. That structure does mean something meaningful for kids. So preach what you practice in your own life and in your own giving. I think you'll start to see Many better, better, many better benefits for the communities that you're seeking to serve. Ian, that's a great note to end on. I always learn a lot and I'm always inspired when I chat with you. Really appreciate all that you're doing. Don't know how you get done all that you get done. It's really phenomenal, but really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Oh, Peter, thank you very much. I've long had a theory, which is that those on the right overvalue the individual while ignoring community, and those on the left speak only of community while ignoring the power of the individual. But I think Ian Rowe, in his book Agency, has found that middle ground argument. He offered us a lot of different approaches to attacking the problems we face, and also a lot of hope. We at Donors Trust believe in a spontaneous order of giving, that the wide swath of donors out there, each supporting his or her preferred issue, ultimately leads to success across all issues. If you have been looking for a framework for your giving and the issues that Ian talks about, any number of these organizations that he brought up or that we talked about would be a good place to start. 
In fact, as a bonus for listening all the way to the end here, I have 10 copies of Agency to give away to the first 10 of you who email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org. That's tellmemore, all one word, at donorstrust.org. And can we at Donors Trust help you and your giving plans? We would welcome the chance to help you think about ways to increase your impact and simplify it. That is, after all, what we do. So reach out again to tell me more at donorstrust.org. Thank you for listening today. Uh, it was great to be with you. If this was your first time listening, or if you just haven't taken a moment to do it yet, then go and subscribe in your favorite podcatching service. We'll bring you new episodes soon on important topics to help you grow your giving. I look forward to the next conversation. Let's talk more soon. <laughs>